Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, we hear about Kunal Mehta's path from pure finance at NYU to sales and trading at Nomura once he graduated. Find out why he quit without anything else lined up, what he did to pay the bills, why he was lost, and how he stumbled into work that had meaning for him. What I like most about this episode is his willingness to share his failed missteps as an entrepreneur and how it has shaped him as an investor on the other side of the table. Also, make sure to check out his latest book, Finding Genius, on Amazon or in bookstores at a store near you. Enjoy. All right, Kunal, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks so did I say me. that right? Is it, is it Kunal or Kunal? Yeah, Kunal. Kunal is Kunal, the right. right. <laughs> Sounds good. So um, real quick, uh, give a little bio of, of your background just to, for the listeners to get some. Yeah, context. for sure. I can, uh, I'll, start, I'll start way back. Um, but I had actually, I'm from Brooklyn originally, a uh, uh, small town of Bay Ridge, and uh, began working at J.P. Morgan in 2007. Um, it was part of a four-year program with NYU uh, where they were going to pay for my full college tuition, but I had to work for them at the same time. It was called the Smart Start Program. I think they still run it. Um, really great program, pretty exciting. They accepted about 15 people here from New York um, and got into the industry before the recession hit. Um, and it was really kind of peak Wall Street. Everybody was living a pretty great life and uh, really interesting to be there. Um, so spent uh, the following four years there kind of riding it the entire way down. So seeing Jake Morgan go through a lot of transitions, um, the acquisition of Bear Stearns. Uh, we actually moved into 383 Madison my senior year of college, uh, which is the old Bear Stearns building. Um, so got to see a, a ton of changes there. Spent another year on Wall Street after graduating college, but was more excited and interested in kind of an entrepreneurial side of things uh, and decided to leave without much of a plan. And I think the reason for that was a lot of the tech media that I was reading was more about it's so easy to start a company if you're smart, you've gone to a good college, you've gotten a good job, you're smart enough to go and launch a billion dollar business. Um, so quit with that kind of misnomer, pretty quickly realized I had no idea what the hell I was actually doing. Uh, <laughs> and I uh, ended up, in order to break into the startup ecosystem and learn more, I ended up interviewing about 50 different people who left their corporate jobs, similar to you, to startup companies that went on to do well. But I wanted to understand kind of in their first six months of what that journey looked like. So I ended up tracking down some founders and got pretty lucky to speak to the founders of um, Pinterest and Betterment and LearnVest and uh, Foursquare and a nonprofit called Charity Water here in New York. 
so some of those companies have gone on and do really well. Some have kind of gone up and then down and then some disappeared. Mm -hmm. But it was really interesting kind of hearing all the perspectives. So published all that in a book called Disruptors and then started working for Charity Water. So I'll, I'll, I'll breeze through the rest really quickly. Sure. Just to understand some context. But so spent three years, two years at Charity Water then left as the book started doing well, did about a six month book tour, which led into a startup idea. Uh, we called it Unfold, we raised some financing for that. Um, and uh, did that for about a year and a half, but it eventually failed, which I can go into if, if it's of interest to your listeners. Um, and then transitioned into venture capital. So for the past four and a half years of an adventure, first two-ish years were through NYU's endowment. It was a small seed stage fund investing in PhDs and faculty and postdocs yep. out of the NYU ecosystem. Um, and then the last two-ish years have been at first ventures here uh, in New York City. Um, we're doing series A through C investments. The fund has been around for over 20 years. The first generation was all media investments in Roku, Pandora, um, BuzzFeed, Netscape, SiriusXM. Some, yeah, some good so ones in there. Really media investments. Uh, and then the second generation has been more as Hearst has diversified away from, uh, they still are very invested in, in media and magazines, broadcast television, radio, but we're also, Hearst at the corporate level has been looking into other areas of interest. So it's been healthcare, it's been finance, it's been transportation mobility. So the ventures team gets to kind of invest in areas that might be of interest to the corporation in the future, uh, more currently. Cool. So, Let's go back to your story because I think that's the yeah. most interesting. I think that's the most relevant to the listeners because you've had some interesting twists and turns. Yeah. So well, going back to that program at NYU, you were working for the full four years. What, what I was, yeah. So full-time in the summers and part-time during the school year. And so what were you doing, like 20 hours a week during the school year? Or? Yeah, about 20, 25 during the school year. Um, and that just covered your tuition fully at NYU? It covered my tuition fully at NYU uh, and they paid hourly and they paid for books. So it was a pretty great program. So yeah, and NYU tuition, even back then, was probably like $50,000 a year. It was a lot. It was definitely a lot. And so, books add up and getting paid hourly too is pretty helpful when you're going out in New York City. So, Does that program typically transition to a full-time job at the same bank? It or doesn't necessarily. I mean, the, the hope is kind of for both sides that it does. Um, is that it works out well and kind of every transition into a full-time job there. Um, the, the idea is that they're supporting you for the four years and then you kind of, in your junior year summer, the way most people do their internships, they do it and they try to find the role there. Were you in bank? Were you in banking during your summer internship? I was. Yeah, I did invest in banking my junior year summer. And so um, tell me about that. You didn't get the full-time offer coming out. I mean, I knew it was a bad I year. Did. Uh, yeah, I did. I ended up yeah. getting the full-time offer, um, but I was not a fan of investment banking. Tell me, uh, tell me why. I wanted to do trading. And one of the uh, directors was leaving JP Morgan to go over to Nomura. And that was when Nomura Security was kind of building out. They had bought over Lehman and everybody was saying it's going to be this incredible experiment here in the US. Um, it, I don't think it panned out the way that many people had hoped. Um, but it was an interesting time to go over Nibiru with, with him. Uh, Tell me about your thought process, sales and training versus investment banking. Um, just, yeah. for, just like more basic level of like, okay, you did the banking thing, what you liked, what you didn't like, and then why you were more attracted to S&T. Yeah, sure. I think the, the banking side was definitely a bit more, um, it was interesting in terms of when deep in within one industry. So we were doing a lot of real estate, uh, kind of hospitality, gaming, and the skills that you build within banking I've definitely noticed later in my career, like at Charity Water, I didn't notice it. Building a startup, I didn't notice it. Now more and more when I'm evaluating businesses, I notice it. But I think the stuff that I could have learned in banking would have been 
in three or four months, um, as opposed to doing it so many different rep repetitions of it, which I think is why a lot of analysts go in for a year or two and then get out. Um, I didn't like the culture. I didn't like the, the kind of lifestyle of it. Um, and I didn't like the pace of it. I think there was a lot of hours in the day where you're just sitting at your desk waiting for someone to drop work on your table. Um, what I appreciated about trading, which I had done my sophomore year, was more the pace of it. And kind of every day you get in around 6, you leave around 4.35. Um, I really appreciate to this day day trading um, and investing in stocks. And I think that was the closest thing that I was getting into um, was the pace of the, the flow of it. And at JP Morgan, there was a really good team there. So appreciated that a bit more. And that's why I wanted to do that. Um, but I don't yep. think skills are that transferable. Why do you think if you kind of knew that you liked it on sophomore year, why do you think you went and did the banking was just the pressure to like, do you invest in banking? Cause everyone else yeah, was? There was a lot of pressure. And I think at Stern, a lot of the conversation was, uh, investment banking is prestigious, the status and things like that. And that's where you need to go. Well, also S and T at that point, you know, after Dodd-Frank and all that stuff, it seems to be a dying business, right? Right. Exactly. And I think that was also changing. That was pre Dodd-Frank when I did S and T. Okay. Um, it was all kind of being talked about while I was there. And I think they didn't see the implications of it all changing at that point. But um, especially with banking, I think there was more of a status element that I didn't really fully understand what the role was before going into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I went into it a bit blindly. So, okay, so you got a nice taste of it over the summer at JPM. You did get an offer, but you turned it down. Was that with an offer from Nomura in hand? Um, it was, yes. Tell me about so, like that time period of like what, getting your offer, how long you have to respond, and then what you did to flip it into a Nomura offer. So I actually know. So it was, it was a soft offer from Jake Morgan. It was kind of when you finish the program, then they end up deciding, then they discuss kind of work with you since you're in that program until the end of June. And they give you another internship for that final year. So they show you another side of the bank. Okay. So it was like, we can stay at Jake Morgan. Here's this groups that you can kind of fall within. Mm -hmm. um, but I ended up doing on-campus recruiting anyway. And then getting an offer from Nomura through that director that I was mentioning. Uh, and that kind of helped transition over to Nomura, which, you know, where I just thought that might be interesting. It might be a new challenge. He was, I was more interested in entrepreneurial endeavors kind of through college. I tried to start a couple of businesses. Mm -hmm. and that's what the way the director was positioning it is. It's a new thing. You'll get a lot more opportunity. You'll learn a lot more. It'll be faster paced. Um, try something you, different. Did different. you still work at JPM during your senior year to pay for your I tuition? Did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I but did. you knew you had the offer of Numer, and they were cool with that. They don't care. Yeah, they were cool with it. And yeah. I think like the individual managers that you're working with, they don't care. Supportive. They're great people. They're just like, yeah, you're working with us for a year, so let's make the most of it. And we know you're leaving. It's a it's a big company, so it's cool. fine. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're, you joined Numero right after undergrad. It's kind of yeah. the depths of the recession. We're coming out of it a little bit. Um, yeah. 2011. Right. Tell me a little bit about what it was like being in that. Was it more like the wild, wild west? Was, was it a 6 a.m. to 5 p.m.? Tell me anything. It like, was 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, and then there would be kind of most nights we'd be going out with clients. Um, so that was kind of different. Um, worked on a really interesting desk there. It was, uh, um, with some folks who kind of have been in the business for a long time, 20, 25 years, they taught me quite a bit. Um, still pretty close with some of them actually. So I, I talked to them quite a bit. Uh, so I won't be too transparent there about the yeah. internal experiences, but um, actually got to uh, kind of meet a ton of really interesting clients, understand the business pretty well. And I think more and more as I talked to the senior members of the desk too, some of them were also telling me, 
is this something that you want to consider for the rest of your career? Things are changing in our industry. We're doing it. We're doing well, but I think the, the good days have kind of passed. And I think it's kind of what you said too, is that the recession had just, we were just sort of coming out of it. So people were a bit more cynical. Mm. I think now there's a lot of traders that are doing really well in the role and it's kind of a little bit gone back to normal. Yeah. Um, but at that time they were very much, I think they were seeing my dissatisfaction with the role. Um, they were seeing that I maybe wasn't as interested in the work. It was doing well. I got the full bonus and got the good reviews and things. It was on a good patch of promotion, but I think it was more just. Were you more on the trading yeah. side or more, on the, more side? on the trading side? Yeah. So you weren't yeah. like, but you still had to entertain clients and go out. Yeah. We still had it. The entire desk did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing more kind of repo uh, anyway. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty social business. Tell me a little bit about, yeah, what was the, what was the trading like? What did you, was it mostly just, uh, um, what you'd call like flow trading, like just, uh, you know, making markets. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly making markets, matching one kind of book with another. It was, it wasn't rocket science. I think like once you do it for a month or two, you pick it up pretty quickly. Um, did that bother you? Were you like, okay. Yeah. I think, I think for me, it was more like, I didn't see myself, uh, wanting to be a director on that that desk. And I, I saw myself 20 years from now basically being like, okay, so I keep doing this. This is what life looks like. Is that exciting? And I think I couldn't pretty honestly say to myself that yes, it did. The only well, do you think before you made the decision to move SNT, if you had known what the day-to-day would be like, would you have changed, would that have changed your decision? Would you have gone to banking? No, I don't think so. No, I what? still don't think, I still don't think that the banking piece was something that I wanted to do. And would you I, have still done SNT just to, just to buy some time and make some money? Yeah, I would have. Um, and I think I also appreciated the personalities in S&T much more than banking. Okay. A little more colorful? <laughs> a little more colorful, a little more social, a little bit more um, kind of less structured in their approach. I think the banking is very much like, the banking approach was very much like, this deck has to look like this. Move this period to this right. element. Make sure the slide is formed which wasn't for me. I was just like, this really is. is well, you're entrepreneurial. You're a little bit more like, let's just go and yeah. figure things out. Yeah. Um, kind of move. Even if the role was a little bit repetitive in trading, I think the, the directors had fun in their jobs. They weren't, they weren't there. They were there to work, but they were also, they had families and they were going back to them. And they were spending time there. And um, not to say that bankers didn't want to do that, but it just felt like they were all at work all the time. Can um, you give me like a one minute summary of what your typical day was like there? Yeah. So, uh, it was a long time ago. Um, so I don't remember it too well, but I mean, I would, I would get into, into work and we would have these roles where we would have to roll off some of the trades that we had on kind of from the previous week or things like that. So we, that, that's kind of what we would do in the morning and the rest of the day was finding Canadian equities. Cause we were finding, uh, we were, I can't, I can't even actually remember it too well. We were making a market on some of the dividends of these Canadian equities. And then we were trading those with Canadian banks, international banks as well. Um, so it was a lot of sitting time on the phone and finding equities that people were trading out of and getting into and, and matching the markets with what Nomura wanted. Um, so it was on a, on a daily basis, it was very similar. Um, there weren't like longer term projects that we were working towards. Yeah. Uh, it was all just execution. It was all execution. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so when you, how, how soon into that role did you know, Hey, this isn't for me. Was it like within a couple months? Yeah. I think like four or five months. Um, and I started looking for other roles pretty quickly. Um, is this when you started reading media too about like startups and I can, you can do it yeah, yourself? Yeah. I started reading media. I started seeing like what's as far away from this as possible. Started getting more excited about nonprofits, started getting really just excited about everything else in technology. I think the hardest part was that there's 22 year olds that are building massive companies. Yeah. Like I'm sitting here doing this repeatable job every single day. 
And then people are telling you that the opportunity cost of you sitting there is that you're you're not going to be building something that's interesting to your building a career. And if you stay in trading longer, you get typecasted as a trader. Um, and that was hard for me to stomach. So I kind of at the four month mark, I started applying. I said, okay, if at one year I can't really find anything that I'm into or interested in, um, because I think a lot of people were also looking at my resume and saying, he's just been on wall street. Like why should we as a startup hire? And, uh, that was also pretty humbling back then. Like luckily things have changed since then, but at that point, wall street still had a pretty negative stigma. Did you think of potentially going venture at all? I didn't. I didn't actually know too much about venture at that point. Um, and I think also I wanted to be on the operating side for a while, um, which was which was a good experience. You had some some businesses during college. You mentioned any anything uh, worth mentioning? Yeah. Um, a friend and I tried to start something called Bill Mash, which was around the same time that Venmo was being launched, oh. and it, similar to kind of how friends share and split expenses. Um, we didn't get too far with it, um, but we were just kept trying small things. And I did like a lot of things that were never technology or venture scale, just small businesses of importing some random thing from China and then selling it on Amazon and making some money like that. Um, but it's just things to keep excited. And I think it was more to keep myself distracted away from Wall Street because that's what all Stern was. It's all what I was doing during the day. It was like, all right, what can I do? That's I'm building something on my own. Yeah, it's, it's funny because... Um with the and with NYU Stern and all that, given the proximity, given everything, when we look at the company database and Wall Street Oasis, and Stern gets the most interviews of like any bank. It's because you hear like Wharton, Penn, all that stuff, but like at least at least from what we're seeing, the data, it's like Stern is just gets a right. ton of interviews. Right. And you'll have, I mean, I think what you'll have is listeners of this podcast who are a little bit confused by the decisions I made, because I think if you're interested in Wall Street and you know that you're interested and excited about it, and then you actually start liking the work, Stern is an incredible place to go. And then Jake Morgan is an incredible place to go. And then being a banker is the elite and it's perfect. And it's exactly everything you've wanted. But I think I did those things and I still wasn't excited or satisfied by the work, but I wish I was, because if I was, I would have stayed in it and I would have done really well. And I would have not minded staying up until 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. every day. But the good uh, thing is you had that perspective early on. You were actually able to see that during college and, and make the pivot. Right. And I think that's what turned me off from it. But like, I still talk to kids who are going to banking and they're like, wait, so should we do this? I'm like, well, I think you should still try it. I think you should still go into it. You should still do trading. You should still do banking. And if you don't like it, then leave. Um, but I don't think like you should write it off just because I'm saying I had that experience. So that's kind of how I think that. You can, I can also help you pay off some student loans. Tell me about the comp you had at. In uh, yeah, you, it can it, be a range. It can be a range. You don't have to tell me exactly. Yeah. Um, it was between, I mean, bonuses at that time weren't great. Um, but at that time, starting salary was between kind of like 70 and $90,000. Um, mm -hmm. And then they had a bonus uh, at the end of the year. Um, but bonuses at that point weren't great. I, mean, I think across the, across the industry, when I was talking to people, they were uh, kind of in the 20 to 50% range. Um, Right, so you're talking like 20k to 30k, something like that 40k. Now I think it's gone more into like a hundred percent bonus. I think starting base is like 85 to 90k in some trading shops. Yep. Uh, so it's definitely increased and improved since then. But I remember everybody on our desk and kind of people I was still talking to, Jake Morgan, were disappointed in the bonuses. They were uh, disappointed. Yeah, I mean those years were <laughs> not the breakout years like 06, 07 were. And which I think is another reason is like if you're going to Wall Street for money, which is kind of part of the reason why I was going there for, 
and then you find out, okay, the money's not even here anymore. I mean, it's still really good business. It's still really good money, but yeah. Compared to most yeah, undergrads coming to school when you're making six figures, you can't complain. Exactly. Right. Um, so yeah. That's... Okay. So you're, this isn't for you four months in, you're kind of drinking the Kool-Aid of the media of, Oh, it's so easy to build a multi-billion dollar business. You know, it's funny cause I was in private equity and I was reading similar stuff, but more about like the Forbes 30 under 30. And what struck me wasn't the billion dollar businesses, but it was like, Hey, wait a second. The kids that they're profiling have these like little niche businesses. Right. And that's kind of what spawned me to like push and, and get something started. And you did well with it. I mean, I think that's the entire interesting model is that there were some businesses that I was considering when I was leaving of saying, I'm never going to raise venture. I'm going to go and try to build something that doesn't need external capital. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't fully understand the full venture model until I started writing that book and how it operates. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I was reading the media and I was realizing that there's a lot of businesses being started. It seems like they're being able to raise capital fairly quickly. Um, they're going out and chasing that billion dollar valuation, but I wanted something in between. I was looking for more of a lifestyle business and something that I could do as one piece of a larger portfolio, like some real estate, some yeah, business. I'm, I'm surprised, you know, a lot of, a lot of kids, I think make the mistake of, of deluding themselves or being delusional into thinking they're going to be the next Venmo, the next WhatsApp. Yeah, I think so I think so. And they waste a couple of years of their life doing it, but then there's a lot that end up doing well with it. And I think, so that's where I was, I later on did that. I was delusional again and thinking that I can do it. And I, I think I might still have that delusion of one day trying <laughs> to start something again. Um, hey, it, you, the only way to actually make it and to, to hit those home runs is to swing for the home runs. Right. If, you can afford I, it. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you about it later, but the, the second book that I wrote actually is a lot of these founders, a lot of these VCs who are backing companies are talking about, there's like an irrational element to a lot of these geniuses who have started these companies, mm -hmm. but they just don't know how to quit and they just keep sticking with it for six or seven years and then eventually it works out, um, which I can share some stories about later too. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, um, so kind of out of eventually, you know, a little under two years, you, you ended up leaving Nomura, but tell me about that transition and a little bit of your search and, and, and what you were kind of thinking about in the, in the, the mind, the, the mindset you were in. And then tell me about the, the book and how that kind of unfolded. Yeah, sure. So I was, um, it was pretty hard actually to make that decision. I think like it was lucky that I, and my parents were pretty supportive of saying that if you just, if you were really unhappy and you decide to quit, that's fine. Like, we'll you'll figure something out. I didn't have student loans, which was another comfort. I think a lot of students are like, they go into the, like, we have to pay off our loans. So I understand that I was in a little bit of a privileged position where my family was like, all right, you can move home if you need to, and you don't have loans. Um, I think for me, I kept trying to find the perfect role. So I would go in for interviews, but then I think a lot of them were just similar positions. Like if I did get an offer, it was a very similar type of role. It was in trading, it was in asset management, it was back in banking, and I'm like, I'm jumping ship and I might as well go all in and do something completely different. Um, I didn't want to just do a lateral move at another fund. Um, so I actually made plans with like two other friends that we would all quit together because they were pretty miserable too. And the plan was that we would all try to launch something simultaneously. They didn't quit. <laughs> I ended up quitting and I had some business ideas of what I wanted to do at the time. Uh, but they quick, those plans quickly blew up. I realized, fairly quickly that I, those weren't things I would be interested in. I don't need to talk about those. They're pretty useless ideas. Um, but, but give me an idea of, of how much planning, like before you went into your boss's office and say, I'm done, tell yeah. me a little bit like, what was the thought? Like it was a couple months chatting with your buddies and they said, yeah, I'll quit too if you quit. And then yeah. you did and they didn't. Yeah, it was a couple of months of that. I mean, it wasn't, I, they, they were pretty clear like later on that they weren't going to actually do it, that 
they needed to still think about things. And I, I, but I noticed that they were pretty unhappy in the following years, like the years that followed too, with their roles and their jobs. And uh, they've made, they've, they've found themselves in roles now that they're more excited about. But I think that that period, it was, it was too big of a leap. Um, so I, I did that and then I figured out uh, the, the transition piece of like the weeks leading up to it were definitely a bit scary. Um, but I had saved up enough kind of through Jake Morgan and Nomura where I was like, okay, I can try to give this a real go. Mm -hmm. Maybe six months or five months of trying to figure out what it is. But now I can commit fully to trying to find a new job. The early days of doing that, it, my bosses were pretty understanding about it. They were like, we've been having that conversation the entire year, like yeah. the six months prior. Where I was telling them like, when we go out for drinks socially, I would tell them like, yeah, I'm not that excited by the work. Like it's interesting, but, and they weren't either. I mean, they were being pretty transparent about how shitty things were on Wall Street <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, I think it was a very transparent conversation and, uh, so they, they weren't shocked. They weren't shocked when you, came they weren't back. shocked. And they even told me that they're like in six months, if you want to come back, we'll figure out a way for you to come back, oh, which great. was also really helpful. Like that's why, what bothered me was that at that time it was also this entire, um, I forgot the movement, the Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, and they were all just bashing every single manager and every single director. And I'm like, I work with really good people who are also like just trying to make a living. And uh, so they were actually really supportive and nice about it. And I actually went out for drinks with them a year later. And at that time I was doing this. Uh, so what I ended up doing just to kind of support myself financially was used a little bit of the financials, like a little bit of the financing that I'd saved up and took out some small leases on apartments in Bay Ridge because Airbnb was just getting launched then. And we, did it about five or six different apartments we were doing short-term rentals and then renting them out at a higher clip um, on a nightly rate. And that did pretty well in order to support myself financially for a couple months while I was figuring things out and it wasn't as much time. Uh, and so you're saying you were, you were leasing out apartments that you were able to sublease through. It was legal. Leasing. Yeah. It was legal in New York at that point. They've changed the laws. There's been some pretty big companies that have started around it now, like common Domeo. There's like multi, hundreds of millions of dollars of companies. Um, but that was always the plan is like a service department model. But then we didn't want to go through the entire legal effort of it. But that was something that to support myself. It was a small business that I was like, this could work in the longer run. We tried yeah, bringing in what, like $3,000 a month, something like that profit. Yeah, that. yeah. right. A couple thousand yeah. a month. Enough to support myself and yep. kind of go around, still go out with friends. But the hard part of that six months after leaving was also going out with people that you were close to, mentors and things like that. And then them asking like, so what's the plan? And you really have no sense either. And you're like, okay, I'm going to commit to exploring and trying to figure this out now, which sounds delusional. Like now that I'm saying it back, it actually sounds like you're crazy. That was not smart. It was not a good decision. But I think in retrospect, like I have younger people who ask me all the time, like, should we just quit? We're unhappy in our job. I'm like, you know what? It's not, it's not the worst idea, but you've really got to be committed to saying every morning I'm going to wake up. I'm going to try to stay positive and I'm going to try to figure out what it is that I want to do next. Um, so that was sort of the process of going through it. Uh, trying to so how out. long, how long were it? So a few months you were doing this Airbnb thing. Got a few I was doing that. I was applying to some jobs. What I realized is every single night, that was a frustrating thing where I'd have a panic attack and then I go start applying to jobs and all the jobs that I started interviewing with were the same thing again. It was like, go back to Jake Morgan, go back to Murrah. And I was like, why am I doing that? I've committed to this. Like, why am I going back into that? So then you I didn't even know you don't, you didn't even really know what you were committing to though. Right. Right. You're committing to, you're committing to finding something else outside yeah. of, I don't know what it is. Right. And I think like, so then I was like, you know what? Startups seem really exciting. So then I changed my search to be more startup focused. But then when I started putting my resume into startups, nobody was responding. And it's because you have a four or five year resume on wall street and they don't know what to do with you. 
So then that's where the book started emerging. I'm like, I need to network with founders. They're not responding right now. They need marketing. So let me say I'm writing a book on startup founders and see if they respond. And then two people responded who were starting pretty big companies at the time. And then from there, they just started introducing me to other people. And I'm like, all right, I actually have a pretty good sizable sample size of what have people done when they've quit their job, when they're unhappy, they're trying to figure out what they want to do next, when they want to be fulfilled, and how do they navigate that journey? And I was like, all right, I'm going to write this book because there's enough people who are miserable in what they're doing where it'd be interesting. Like, it'd be interesting to talk to you one day and say, okay, how did you figure out when you were going to launch Wall Street Oasis? And like in the early days when your friends are like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what, what is this thing? But now it's like, well, I, I, I was, I didn't have any sort of uh, guts like you and actually just quit outright. I went to business school as like an insurance policy while I was building it up. <laughs> that was my plan too. My plan was like, okay, if, if things really go south, then I'll go to business school. So tell me a little bit about, so as you start interviewing, what was the first big break in terms of who you interviewed that you thought was a big, um, yeah, so I, the first one was actually pretty interesting. There was a guy named Ben McConti who started a company called Yip It. Uh, he used to work at Blackstone. And he also got inspired because Mark Zuckerberg came and spoke at Blackstone. And then he quit. And he started 13 companies that failed uh, before launching of Yip It, which is now a profitable company in New York and doing pretty well. Uh, but then beyond him, like he kept introducing me to others. And then I think it was the founders of, like the head of business development for Foursquare, the uh, one of the founders of Pinterest, the Anamsada Lavingia, um, Betterment and LearnVest were very small then. Mm -hmm. They were basically seed stage startups. They were building out of small rooms. I didn't know how big they'd eventually become, but LearnVest sold to Washington Mutual for, I don't know, a couple hundreds of millions of dollars. Betterment is now valued at over a billion dollars and it's doing pretty big, doing pretty well. So I sat with John Stein, I think, when they had like seven people in the room. So I didn't know the magnitude of like what this company would become. Mm -hmm. uh, and like kind of how much equity I would have really forced myself to getting a role in those places. <laughs> uh, but I think the one that I was most inspired by was a guy named Scott Harrison from Charity Water. So I sat with him and then right after I emailed him, I was like, I want a job, like whatever I can do, let me know. And he immediately introduced me to the CFO. He's like, we're building out our finance team. Do you want to join? Uh, so I met with the CFO and then pretty quickly he turned into a job there, which was really exciting. Tell me a little about what Charity Water did. So they're still around. They're doing really well where they, their focus is providing clean and safe drinking water in developing countries. Um, the entire premise is that the nonprofit model was a bit broken where if you give $100, you don't actually know how much is going to people in need. Uh, 50, 45% of that could be eaten up by overhead costs and you don't actually know how the dollar is being broken up. Mm -hmm. So Scott was in, I think it was Liberia, kind of saw what the problems people are facing without clean water. He told us about it. He's done quite a bit of few talks on it. Um, and then launched this nonprofit, Charity Water. Um, and it's more, it's a faster pace, more modern, well-branded, well-thought-out nonprofit. That's like, there were a ton of ex-consultants and bankers and ex-tech people that were involved. So two of the or pre pretty early employees of Twitter were now running growth. Um, Chris Saka from Lowercase Capital was a big investor in Charity Water, um, might still be. Um, and they've had supporters like Daniel Ack from Spotify all within the tech community. So it's more kind of younger, fast moving nonprofit than the ones that are traditionally around. Yeah. So I was working on the finance team there. So it was about a three person team. Now I think it's about, I don't know, five, 15, 20 people. Um, and they've provided clean drinking water to, I don't know, millions of people now. I don't know what the exact number is. Um, in almost over 27 countries. So got to see some of that work in Ethiopia as well, which is really interesting. So. That's awesome. So sorry, how much more time do you have? 
Uh, yeah, I got another 10, 15 minutes. 10 minutes. Okay. So you're there for, you're there for a couple of years. Tell me when you released your book. Was this during, like, so you had started interviewing, you were inspired by him. He, yeah. He's part of the book, right? Finding Genius. Yeah. He's part of the, So this, so that was actually my first book. That was Disruptors. Sorry, Disruptors. So Disruptors is your first book. Disruptors and, is my first book. Finding Genius, I just published two months ago, which is all VC based. Okay, so let's so disruptors you had started with those specific uh you know interviews and you were going to bring it into a book yeah were you working the two years you were at cherry water were you kind of i was working at the same time yeah and i published it kind of midway through and then talked to scott the ceo of charity water and he was like super supportive of it um and at first so when i published the book i didn't really know what i was doing on in publishing and up hiring some virtual assistants and then did a pretty extensive book tour. So I got featured at Stanford, Harvard, did a TED talk around it, um, started getting into conferences, started learning I can be paid to speak publicly. So it turned into a second revenue stream, which was interesting. Um, and, then, and then kept doing it. And that led to a startup opportunity called Unfold. So then ended up leaving Charity Water to do that. Tell me a little bit more about the, the actual like publishing idea. Did you go self-publish? Did you... I did self-publish. So at that time, I talked to two publishing agents and I had a book deal from, from one of them. Um, and the book deals are shit. And they're really, they're not good for first-time authors. They are... What are you uh, looking at? Like 10% royalty, net less, royalty? Much less. 5% and like a $10,000 advance or something? Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're like, they promise you a lot of support in terms of what they're going to actually do for you and how they're going to market the book. And but I also knew that I was a nobody writing this book and we were all banking on the people within it. Um, so then I ended up self-publishing through Amazon, which was, it's been, it was a good experience. Like it was, it worked out well, hired some editors, hired some designers. And then the book ended up taking off just because of kind of like if, again, with the entrepreneurial endeavor, if I wasn't doing it on my own, then it was more fun to actually try to launch this and, uh, and try to sell it. Uh, and then you get hundred percent of the profits. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with the speaking too. Well, what is, what does Amazon take? What's their cut? Amazon takes about 35%. 35%. So 65% comes to you. It's much better than any sort of deal yeah. you're going to get. Right. And then also you don't control how your book is distributed, when it's released or anything like that. Like you can get a book deal and then they can say, you know what, we need to work on this for three years. And then the content's completely stale. Then it defeats the purpose. For people who are looking to self-publish a book. Yeah. And they have, let's say, they've been able to compile like experts. I think that's an awesome way to get great content. And and get something actually really interesting, kind of published. Right. But tell me about what you what levers you feel like you pulled. Was it the speaking? Was it the was it social media? Was it what what was the levers you pulled that you feel like made the biggest impact in terms of sales? Was it coming on podcasts like this? Yeah, of course. This is going to be huge. Um, I think it's more the uh, the virtual assistants and kind of them. I figured out that universities wanted this this uh, topic to be discussed kind of internally as well. Is that they had a lot of the big firms coming in to recruit, but nobody was really asking students what it is that you like to do. How do you figure that out? How does someone navigate that, that process? Um, so a lot of the universities ended up picking it up. I think the speaking was the biggest way of getting it out because then you get 100 or 200 books sold right overnight um, into one of these institutions and then you go there and speak. You, get, you work with the students and trying to figure out some of the stuff that they're thinking about too. So I think that was probably the biggest. And, and were you getting paid for that? What, was it covering your travel at least? It was covering travel and then there were speaking fees and kind of like, like 500 bucks, a thousand bucks. What were, what are we talking? Yeah. In the beginning, yeah, it was somewhere around there. And then it scales up as you keep negotiating with each kind of university and you mind, you mind sharing the most you've been paid for a speaking gig? Uh, yeah, I'll probably keep that. Private. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, it's like been, yeah, it's been good. Like you okay. More. I'm just curious, just curious that whole market. Like it's, it's not fast. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll tell so, you what I'm recording. <laughs> so the, so the actual, so the book ended up turning into a, um, into a, your own business really. It did. Yeah. Which was really, and it was the first time. And that, I think that was kind of what I was looking for too, is something that brings revenue on the side of what you're doing, what keeps you passionate and excited. And Charity Water was what was keeping me excited and passionate at the time. Um, so got to do that. And, and then also it was interesting, like going and meeting students and talking to them all the time and figuring out like, you hate Wall Street. So what is it that you want to do? You hate consulting. You hate startups. You hate, so your parents are telling you to do one thing. Your faculty is telling you to do another. Like, have you ever thought, okay, this is what I actually care about. This is what I want to do. Um, so spend some time doing that. Which is interesting. Yeah. Great. So tell me about this, this startup. Yeah. So there's not much to tell, um, but we, we launched a, a startup called Unfold. I partnered with a creative director and a, um, kind of a senior engineer from Charity Water. And we launched uh, our premise, our hypothesis, which I still believe in. And I've seen maybe 20 other startups doing the same thing um, and all kind of facing the same struggles is that long form content, whether it's the Atlantic or the New Yorker or um, kind of the best New York Times articles, it's pretty noisy on the web to find good content. And the way we believed it would happen was you, your, your, your social network would recommend it to you. But the way they're doing that is on Facebook where there's also kind of baby pictures from kind of other friends you know. There's, there's status updates on Twitter. It, they share things, but it's pretty ephemeral. It goes away fairly quickly. So we were trying to launch the Instagram for long form content where you click into it, your friends are sharing the best things. It's more about what they're thinking about as opposed to the external pictures and things. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what we launched and we launched on the app store. So we raised some financing for it through venture capitalists um, and uh, good process, like good learning and actually getting a product out there, thinking about how you launch a business that's supposed to be bigger, not profitable for a while, kind mm -hmm. of what the revenue stream for something like that would be. Uh, but it ultimately didn't work out kind of as we started thinking about how we get beyond the paywalls for publishers, which is kind of what we wanted to do. Um, which was, I think part of it was naivety. It was some of it was um, not really learning how to build products. We were moving a bit slower. Now I think if I had a second go at it, just being an inventor, like I would know a lot more about how you build a business. Um, but I think it was, I wouldn't take it back. Like the same question about sales trading. Like even though it was another year of trying to figure something out, mm -hmm. I wouldn't take it back. It was helpful. Great. So tell me about your latest kind of <clears throat> pivot. And so then as that was kind of winding down, you started obviously looking, well, you still enjoyed working with startups, right? Yeah. You started looking to VC, right. but tell me a little bit about the the second book. What, what kind of spawned the idea for this new book, Finding Genius? And yeah, sure. On that. Yeah. So the second book is, um, was released two years ago, two, sorry, two months ago. Mm -hmm. um, I started working on it two years ago, but I think after Unfold, which was a startup, then I really figured out, okay, this is what I want to do. And now I know venture capital is what I want to do. And it took me maybe up, up until 26 years old to figure that out. Mm -hmm. uh, but now I've been in venture capital and I plan on staying in it for the foreseeable future. But um, the venture capital industry is ex extremely exciting because you're, you're as close to the founders as possible and you're taking some level of risk. But if you believe that you personally don't have it in you to be an entrepreneur, then it's a great place to be. And you get to invest in them and get to see kind of macro trends. But what I wanted to learn about was the top VCs that are out there were people were asking questions about them when I was on the book tour for the first one. They cared less about the entrepreneurs and they cared more about how do I get financing for my idea. And I realized there's like, it's a, it's still pretty kind of this mythical beast of how venture capitalists operate. Like where's the money actually coming from? What, what are their theses? How do they make investments? 
So I started interviewing the 50 VCs behind Airbnb, Uber, Pinterest, Tesla, SpaceX, kind of a lot of large companies to see what patterns they had noticed. Um, I did that for about two years. And then the back half of the book is written by a more diverse audience, uh, a diverse author base of VCs who are kind of female from different geographies, different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, uh, people of color. So they, they gave their perspectives on healthcare, on fintech, on um, media, on, on commerce, on consumer uh, to share. So uh, now an entrepreneur who's about to start a company can read the first app, understand how venture capital works, and then go deep within an industry to see how things are changing. Uh, so just released that about two months ago too. And so you, I can think of it almost like the perspective <clears throat> from a VC of how they look for genius. Exactly. Right. And like what is real versus what's just a pithy tweet that they put out um, or a, a blog post. So it's like really going deep into ones that they've backed and kind of what stood out between each of them um, and how do they all work together in that sense. Very cool. So any book tours planned for this one? Yeah, I've been on a pretty extensive book tour. So I just did uh, Harvard Business School, Brown University, Columbia, NYU, mm-hmm. um, I do Stanford, and then have I did I now have broken into corporate. So like J.P. Morgan, SAP, Brex. I've done events for the book already, um, and then have some bigger ones lined up. So it's been it's been a lot of fun getting it out there. Uh, yeah, it's been good. So it's been super exciting. <clears throat> I think it's great that you know you're able to kind of own the the missteps. Yeah, right. You've made. I'll call them missteps, but they were learning missteps, right? So tell me a little bit about looking back over like the four years. So um, if you want, you can tell me a little bit about what you're currently doing next, but, or you can kind of look back in terms of the transitions. Is there anything you would have done differently? I know you said you would don't regret the other things, but yeah, I think the transition, I think the, um, I think giving, getting out of Wall Street quicker would have probably been better for me. Um, maybe not even staying the full year or not even staying after graduating. Um, mm-hmm. I think just because I knew pretty quickly that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, I think the experience at Charity, what I wouldn't take away, that was pretty helpful in developing an international perspective, seeing how product teams work well with tech teams. Mm-hmm. The, I would have given the startup more time uh, of seeing if we can make it work. Uh, but I think that was also, if, if we knew more about how it was all supposed to operate, now that's saying that now where I'm sitting on how businesses and what products we can launch. So I still don't know what I don't know. Um, in terms of that, I, in terms of Unfold, do you feel like um, it was just a question of not, not asking for enough money up front to give yourself a longer runway? No, I think it was also based off of what money we would be able to get. And I think that's another thing too, is like a lot of people try to raise venture when they're not ready to raise. And I think we weren't ready to raise. We didn't have the traction yet to demand it. Um, but I think even without that, like there was other ways that we could have supported ourselves without raising venture capital. Like we didn't even need to raise venture capital at that point. Uh, and we could have tried to really give this a go in a much more focused way. Uh, Can you talk a little I, bit about that? Like in terms of what, what would you, how would you define as ready? I would think we were trying to find like, are you talking friends and family first? No, not even from a financing perspective. I think like we were trying to build the most beautiful product over six months where we should have just launched something quicker within one month and seen how people use it and then go and talk to the customers and figure out what is it they like, what don't they like, what would they want to see more of. Go and talk to the publishers and basically say, this is what we're thinking, how can you partner with them? So it was completely out of the financing realm. Like, so the money that we spent personally in the six months, we could have made a lot more headway, I think, um, had we been doing this now and knowing what we know. So my CTO kind of has gone and become the CTO of another big company. And we talk about this often. 
because like now the stuff that we know now four or five years later if we want to give it another go it would be much different um but i don't think i have any regrets like the, there were missteps there were decisions that i think i made that uh but i i think like all this has led to being a better vc because now i think i have the perspective of finance i have the perspective of starting a company and I have the perspective of working at one um there are better vcs because they've been doing one thing for a long time because they've been doing venture for a long time or they've been operating for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I think it's all like when you're in venture, it's kind of how diverse your past perspectives are when you're reaching out to companies and knowing kind of how do you evaluate them for that, that platform that you're standing on. Um, so now if I meet a publishing startup, I know more about that space and industry than I did otherwise. If I meet something in clean water and renewable energy, I know more about it. If I meet clean FinTech, I have some kind of basis to go off of. Uh, so that's sort of how I think about it too. For sure. Um, in terms of the listeners, they may, they often ask me to ask this. So <laughs> in terms of VC and pay, are, is more of your stuff skewed towards carry now? Is the base better than it was in, in finance? I assume since you're more senior, but. It is. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much I can share. I yeah. mean, just based off of where I am and things like that, but the salary is good. Um, and there's, there's a ton of really good VC kind of salary surveys and things like that. So there's some element okay. of salary, there's some element of base, there's some element of bonus. Um, the, the, the range is very wide in VC. Um, but I think you'll notice that kind of at most buy side roles too, is whether you're one fund, how big the fund is, how. Yeah. What are the assets under management? Right, exactly. So I'm happy to share kind of one of those surveys with you so you can share it around too with your listeners. Um, cool. That'd be great. Out to me and I can have a candid conversation. So anything else you want to leave listeners with? Where can they buy, uh, where can they buy your book? Yeah, so it's called Finding Genius, uh, and it's on Amazon, um, and it's in a lot of bookstores as well. So they can pick it up there and hope, hope they enjoy it. Awesome. Well, Kuno, we'll link, we'll link to that as well in the show notes. So uh, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story. I think it was, it was really interesting. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome, man. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.